here's what's going to happen or what should happen. Mom and baby should be physically separated right then and there. But I promise you that what's harder is coming out of an episode of postpartum psychosis and then coming to the realization that you've killed your baby. Welcome back to another impactful episode of FemPower Health. Georgie here. Today we dive into a topic that affects so many yet remains shrouded in silence, postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. Statistics tell us that one in seven mothers may experience postpartum depression while postpartum psychosis, though rarer, can occur in one in 1,000 new mothers. These conditions are not just numbers. They are deeply personal, often hidden battles that countless women face, and yet many are afraid to speak about them, fearing judgment or misunderstanding. For those who have questions, the difficult, haunting ones you may be too scared to ask, today's episode is for you. Whether you're seeking understanding, help, or just want to be more informed, we're here to shed light on this essential topic. In today's episode, we're honored to have with us Dr. Teresa Castalis. Dr. Castalis is not just a renowned name in the field of psychiatry, she has also dedicated her life to the pursuit of social justice and service learning. From her early days at Canisius College to her time with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, where she served adolescents at an inpatient drug rehabilitation program, Dr. Castalis has always been driven by a deep sense of compassion. Her commitment took her to Georgetown University School of Medicine and later to the prestigious Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and today she's making a massive difference as the Medical Director for Connections Crisis Response Centers in Phoenix and Tucson. Now let's delve into the intricacies of postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis, and please do refer to the show notes for further resources. Dr. Castalis, I'm so excited to connect with you today. There are a lot of hard mental health topics these days that we really need to be talking about. And and here at FemPower Health, um, we don't hold back on anything. And I think it's so important to create awareness of what people are going through when they're struggling. And I think with the maternal health crisis in our country, I think this is such an important topic, which is postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. And until you all reached out, I didn't even know there was a difference. And so I'm very intrigued and um, excited to spread awareness. And so before we dive into questions, I'd love to get your background and um, talk to us about like your background personally, professionally, and also um, even how you became so passionate about this specific topic. I'm Dr. Teresa Castales. I'm a, a board certified psychiatrist. Um, I'm currently serving as the Arizona Medical Director for Connections Health Solutions. Uh, We are a provider of crisis behavioral health care. So I oversee two crisis facilities, one in Phoenix and one in Tucson. Um, We are a no-wrong-door organization, and what that means is that anybody experiencing any sort of mental health crisis whether it's because of an acute stressor, um, because of an exacerbation of an underlying illness, because of a new illness developing, or because of a crisis caused by substance abuse. They are welcome here. We take them in, we assess, we treat, and um, get them the resources they need and 
get them to the level of care that they need to be at. So we serve anybody who comes in that door. Oh, that's so important because I know a lot of people between shame and maybe being so stuck, they don't even know where to reach out or how, and probably a million other reasons um, that we may not even be aware of. So it's great that you um, have such a resource. Yeah, access to care is is so important. It's hard enough for people to, to reach out, and especially when uh, a part of the illness is not recognizing that you have an illness. Mm-hmm. For the community to understand where their resources are, where they can take someone and not have to jump through a bunch of hoops and go through red tape and wait for months to get in to see someone, to have immediate access to high quality mental health care is rare, too rare, um, and very, very necessary in all of our communities. It's funny. I feel like I have to just ask this because it's going to be on people's minds. And then we can dive into specifically postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. And so um, I have an eight-year-old and I know that with COVID and whatnot, it was impossible to find a therapist. And it was like urgent. It was to the point where we just got someone to have anyone and that wasn't effective. Um, and we noticed because he resisted, um, but we needed something. And I'm just curious, um, like when people reach out, like how, I guess, talk to us about access because this is not about just reaching out to your center. I think this is a general access question. And so um, for someone who is really struggling and they're like, I don't even want to hear about postpartum psychosis and postpartum depression. I'm talking about access first. So let's just address it and then we can dive in. <laughs> so I think that one of the, the big, huge, huge barriers to access to immediate access to care or maybe access altogether is that mental health systems tend to be really complicated. Um, whether you're voluntary, whether you're not voluntary for treatment and there has to be some sort of forced treatment, whether you need access to medication management, evaluations, therapy, referrals to primary care, referrals to neurology, what type of insurance do you have Like dictates where you can go? Because the systems are so complicated, it's almost impossible for somebody out there in the community to just know how to navigate that coming into it. And so it's a huge deterrent uh, to finding the care that you need. So our company is called Connections, and that's that's really what we do. I see all points of the mental health system intersecting at us, and we have this high-level view of the entire system and how all of the pieces connect. And we're able to help people navigate, help individuals, families, other supports navigate that system, walk them through it, uh, bring them to appointments sometimes. And having that service for the community um, makes all the difference in the world. Because if you, let's say you find a therapist and eventually find a therapist who takes your insurance and then it's not working. Well, now what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're going to left without for who knows how long. Where do you start with looking for somebody new? Where can you go? We help with all of that. So let's talk about 
postpartum depression and, and postpartum psychosis. I mean, we hear there was even a recent story of the mother who ended up jumping out of the second story window who had killed her children, which is devastating. So I'm assuming that's probably the postpartum psychosis end. I'm, I'm making an assumption here um, of, of what this is, but I assume that's probably one of the more extreme cases. Um, so can you just, I don't know, maybe give us some background on, I'm a woman, I've just had a kid. What what happens? And yeah, let's walk us through that that journey. I will say I'm a, I am a mother uh, of two myself. So right now I have a, a two-year-old and a, and a five-year-old. Um, so these are things, and I'm going to pepper in some of my experience as, as we walk through that journey, um, because no one prepares you for how difficult um, it's going to be. When I had my first child, my daughter, um, my parents were there to support me. I was already a psychiatrist. I was... Uh, I had finished my residency, was in fellowship. Um, I knew all about baby blues. I knew all about postpartum depression. Um, I had no history of depression or anxiety. Uh, I was doing pretty well. I had a lot of protective factors. Um, And after I had my daughter... I can remember maybe about a week or two in, every afternoon I started to feel this overwhelming sense of dread, anxiety, tearfulness. I didn't know what I was worried about, but I was worried. I was terrified. I was sad. And... I recognized this must be baby blues with a hefty anxiety component. I could intellectually say that because I'm a psychiatrist, because I had taken an interest in, um, in reproductive psychiatry, even back in residency. Um, and I had been to all the journal clubs. I had, I had read, I had treated women with postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. I knew what this was. Mm-hmm. And I still couldn't think my way out of it. So what was happening to me was that I had just given birth, meaning I had crazy hormonal fluctuations happening. I was breastfeeding or struggling through breastfeeding for the first time, trying to get my baby to latch, trying to figure out why she was up crying all night. When I changed her, I'd rocked her, I'd fed her. Um, And every time I would feed her then, you know, I was sore. At one point, you know, your nipples are are bleeding and you know you have to keep nursing. I had a doula, I had a lactation consultant, I had all the support and it was still really, really hard. Um, I remember crying, breastfeeding her up all night and feeling incredibly, incredibly alone, even though I had some support around me. At the end of the day, I'm still responsible for this tiny, very fragile human who I just carried for nine months um, and waited for. Um, 
and that was really overwhelming. Uh, so I, I had baby blues and it lasted for maybe a week and a half, two weeks. And, and then it, and then it resolved. Um, I was worried at that time that what was starting to happen was, was postpartum depression. Um, because, you know, once it becomes postpartum depression and again, I knew as a psychiatrist, what the, what the possibility was. And I still was like, I, I, I can do this. It's, it's going to work out. This is going to be over with. And I, I had not reached out. I had not reached out to any of the psychiatrists I knew to a therapist. I was like, this is, I, I'm going to be okay. I can do this. I, I don't need anybody else right now, even though it was felt so intolerable every day for, for a period of hours, just crying, crying. And I was fortunate that it ended. I was fortunate that it was just baby blues. And even now though, that was emotionally very difficult to deal with. That was a very brief period. And you know, when you have babies, it all starts to blend together. Right for a while, right? But I remember the feeling very distinctly of that period where I had baby blues. Um, and and there no amount of support around me and my family could could help at that point. Postpartum depression will will last for for much longer, much more consistently. Uh, I was feeling like that way for a few hours every day, maybe five hours a day. Um, postpartum depression, depressed mood or irritability, kind of mood swings, the crying, um, withdrawal, uh, which is makes things especially difficult because at the time you need help most, your illness is making you withdraw. What about like feeling disconnected from your child as well when you said withdrawal yeah yeah so it's yeah it's not just from your supports it's also from the baby so that's it it very much interrupts your bonding uh with your baby when when you're when you're feeling that way when you're when you are getting depressed or in full-blown depression um your ability to connect is is impaired um which is tragic it's that's that's a very difficult thing to get through um so it's it's all the symptoms of of a of a depressive episode, only it's while you have a newborn, <laughs> which is like, I mean, how are you supposed to cope with that on your own? And so we started talking about access to care. Immediate access to care when this begins happening is incredibly important to help mitigate those symptoms prevent progression of the illness. And when I say prevent progression of the illness, I mean, it can feel really bad to be depressed, to be sad, to not be eating. But eventually this often progresses to thoughts of wanting to die and then thoughts of wanting to kill yourself because you just want to end the pain. And depression is a disease of cognitive distortions. So you see things, you see the world, you interpret every 
every interaction you have through this lens of depression. And it, it twists the way you understand how others are seeing you and how the world appears and you begin to think differently. And so that despair that results from these cognitive distortions is enough to drive a lot of people to attempt to kill themselves. And this is a treatable illness. This is a treatable illness. This is an episode, although it doesn't feel like it at the time. It feels like this is it. This is it now. This is how I am. And you can't think your way out of it. And it requires treatment. But if you get early treatment, you get therapy, you get the support of, of friends and family who come in and help you and help you with the baby. Because again, very overwhelming to take care of a newborn. Very overwhelming to take care of a newborn. Generally speaking, I think having examples is is really important. Like for me, I had the same situation. My son's now eight and I went through four years of fertility treatments and then had him. I was a high, high, high risk person for postpartum depression. And every, and I don't know if they were just being proactive or like there was something specific about me. It doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, it was about making sure that I was able to be there for my son. But I remember every OBGYN appointment, they would do the checklist. They would educate me about it. And um, they gave the checklist to my husband. But anyway, so um, I had a really hard time breastfeeding. I was that mom that made the cookies I got so sick of making them. I bought them, or at least I bought the Mm -hmm. recipe where I just dumped in the liquid ingredients, made the cookies, made the smoothies. Everything I ate had the ingredients and it was still hard. There was a situation where my ex had to hold this syringe while Mm -hmm. I was, um, I don't even, it was so complicated. It was like, it took basically all of us, my baby, me and my ex, all working together to get my kid to nurse. And it had to do something with, I had to nurse before he woke up and that Mm -hmm. milk would be put in with a syringe into his mouth to get him interested in suckling while we put an ice pack on his back because he was sleeping and wouldn't wake up to nurse. And then he would Mm -hmm. finally nurse. And then it was, I have to do this in two hours because as you know, the clock starts when you start nursing, not when you're done. And he barely nursed. I didn't produce milk fast enough. So I wasn't sleeping. And so I got to this point where, and I'm so grateful that they said, anything that happens is okay. Talk to us. I remember I'm holding him. This is the kid. I spent four years of appointments and being stabbed and medications and whatnot to have him. I'm holding him. And every time I walked near a door, I had, I said to people, I'm like, I don't even know how to explain this. I'm like, it was this like, fantasy fear bumping into the door with his head. And I'm like, this is so messed up. And I finally just said something and they're like, it's okay. And then I was on a mandatory sleep. So it was, you feed him, you go to sleep. There is no dishes. There is no cooking. There is no nothing. You sleep. That is all you are allowed to do is feed, sleep, feed, Uh sleep. And I did that. Luckily, it was just a few days. Wow, was that scary. Oh Isn't my it? gosh. 
and it hits you out of nowhere yeah. and you're like is this coming from my brain yeah. i mean it's it yeah so so talking about postpartum ocd it's another very fascinating topic and something that i i got the, i've had the chance to treat before um, and a lot of women will have very mild symptoms of OCD going back many, many years, even to childhood sometimes. And you, so you can see kind of the predisposition, but it never really manifests into like full clinical disorder. Okay. Right? Uh, it never really impacted their functioning, but you can see some of the stuff going back as you ask, as you dig into like, like do those formal assessments, like a Y box. Um, and then there are these remarkable changes in a woman's brain that occur when she gives birth um, that you can see on functional neuroimaging when you take fMRIs of a, a postpartum woman's brain and you compare it to how her brain was before. Um, you see these changes in uptake that are occurring. Um, and one of the big effects is a is a massive increase in your in your empathy, um, which facilitates bonding. It facilitates all of those warm maternal feelings manifesting in in nurturing of this little human that you are wholly responsible for keeping alive. Um, but the flip side of that is that it can make you very overwhelmed with emotion and anxious. The example I like to give of that is again, it's a, a personal one. I'm a I'm a big true crime, thriller, horror movie kind of person, and always have been. And I can remember that right after I had my daughter, my parents were watching some TV show that wasn't even like that scary, um, but it was a this like scary m monster thing was was out in the like frozen tundra and it was like chasing these guys and they couldn't really see it. And, you know, they were dying from all sorts of weird illnesses and it wasn't that exciting. Um, but I remember coming into the room and watching this for a minute and feeling all of the dread that someone would feel if they were really alone out there and being chased by some mysterious, scary creature that they couldn't see. And I, took on all of that in a way that I never had before and ended up almost yelling, you have to turn this off. You have to turn this off. Like, I can't, I can't even watch this right now. And they were like, what is going on with you? And those are, that's a very typical change that happens in a woman's brain after she gives birth, regardless of whether you have a history of OCD, depression, anxiety, um, regardless of whether you're experiencing baby blues or postpartum depression, that is a normal change. Okay. Which is wild. It's wild that your brain changes when, when you give birth and those changes persist. We don't know how long they persist for, but they persist for, for years, for a long time, um, that you're going to be different after you have a baby. Has this always been around and we're just becoming more aware of it and more open because we are talking about mental health is there are there also potentially societal factors like I feel like the the topic of loneliness is starting to come up a lot more so I think it's uh you know impossible to tell for sure uh but it's very likely all of the above 
Uh, okay. It's always been there to to some extent in our society. Um, it's better recognized now. We're talking about it more now. Um, and human beings are by nature tribal. Uh, and we evolved raising our babies and children in these communities um, where there was a lot of support constantly. And I, I even began imagining that when I had my daughter um, and felt so isolated. And I was living in a city that was like relatively new for me. Um, I, had, I had trained and, and grown up in New York. Um, and then I was in Seattle and I had been there a couple months when I got pregnant. So it was still a relatively new city for me. I had my parents there, but it was still, I still felt really isolated and lonely. And I, I, I felt like I needed, I would really have benefited from having a tribe around me. Um, and I think that as society has progressed in the way that it has, even though we are constantly talking to each other on, in some way on social media um, and having those exchanges, it's not the same as having that community around you. So I think that that is contributing. I, th I think that people being at home more um, even post pandemic is probably contributing as well. I know I don't do great working from home. Right. I just don't. I, I do a lot better coming into an office at least mm -hmm. a few days a week um, and having that community uh, in a healthy place, which like I'm, right. work, I'm very lucky. I work at a very, in a very healthy work environment with people who um, we're all on mission together and, and we have a great time at work. Um, but I think uh, to some extent, that was true even when I worked at places that wasn't as supportive. There was something about being around other humans. So I'm curious about this dynamic of, of community. Um, is it where one of the preparations is, even though we may have friends and family staying with us or helping, does it, it almost seems like having a separate, like people like me, people who are in my shoes community, so it's a safe space to be able yeah. to talk yeah. because I can imagine the filter because with family members, it's probably, this is what you should do. This is how you should do it. And you're already stressed out mm -hmm. and everyone's like telling you the way to do it. And mm -hmm. so you don't even get to breathe. And I'm sure that's added pressure. So do you advise that's like a key, would that be like a key way to get through this tough time? Um, I, I would say, especially, um, I mean, for any postpartum period, but especially if you're having uh, baby blues or beginning to experience postpartum depression, yes, having a group of people who are in a similar situation to you, who you can just be with and relax um, and let your guard down and maybe vent about those family members who are telling you these uh, wackadoo things to do sometimes that like they learned was the thing you're supposed to do, but you're like, Oh my God, how did we survive? Um, having that group is, is very important. Now I do have to, to call out, just given access to care. So 
let's face it, you and I Mm -hmm. were able to afford Mm -hmm. doulas. Being able to afford that, unfortunately, in this country, we don't have such proactive Um, healthcare system. And uh, so there's all these wonderful things. I mean, yes, we can find the friends, we can do all these things, but like, maybe we should start with the realistic ways that people can find support. Um, You had mentioned people being able to, to contact you. And what does that mean financially? So maybe we start with the basics of I do not have the money to pay for all these quote unquote, fancy things, even though they shouldn't be fancy, they should be foundations, what would they do? And I, and I do think there are um, programs in, in some areas, probably especially in cities, uh, where women are able to have access to a doula and often have access to a doula who is um, of the same uh, race or uh, ethnic background which is super important too, or it can be for a lot of women. Um, So I I think that outside of having immediate access to all of these incredible resources, doing what you did, which was building a group of people around you when you can and forming real life relationships with people who you, who you get along with, who you can, trust and lean on for support is also incredibly important. I think if we also, as professionals and people who advocate for better, higher quality care, um, especially for for women, if we raise the alarms um, and advocate for the formation of of these programs, I think that that can have a big impact on whole communities. I think education um, on, like you were talking about going to your appointments and having your OBGYN go through these symptoms with you um, and then educating your partner on the same topics can have a huge, huge impact. I'm hoping that as I go out there and I talk about postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis, and and I think OBGYNs are really very much on board with all, every OBGYN I've ever met has been very much on board with having this um, education, having this knowledge, and then passing that knowledge and understanding along during appointments is, can have a huge, huge impact because if you don't know what to look out for, you're not going to know what's what's hitting you. And then if you're if the primary care providers OBGYNs have some working knowledge of their local mental health system, being able to provide those resources to patients during their routine appointments is also huge. That's a Connections is not in every city. We are expanding and looking to go other places. We talk about our model. We do consultant work and help other communities develop the type of uh, crisis system uh, that we have been able to develop here in in Arizona. Um, just knowing what those resources are, though, I think is a, is a really important function of primary care 
including OBGYNs. I hear more often than not, I don't want to pry. So help help those who are, because tr- again, the women may not call. They yeah. may be so depressed, they may not know. So as a, as a general tip, when women are starting to even hint at they're struggling, they have been struggling for real for some time. And they may not have the words to tell you. They may be a little embarrassed and doing all of that self-talk that we tend to do. I can handle this. I can do this. I don't need help. I'm strong. I'm not weak. If you are seeing these signs leak through in your interactions with a, with a woman in your life, especially if she's just had a baby, please pry. <laughs> she is in need of help. And she may not be overtly asking for it, but she's asking for it. How does one pry? Yeah. Um, So it's going to be a little different for every person, how you approach it. And you might have to try a couple of different ways because everybody's a little different. But I think showing up is a a huge, huge part um, of beginning to pry. Just being there, not asking how can I help? Um, an image that I like uh, that that comes to mind during this conversation is if you come across a person who's hanging on to a cliff by their fingernails and you come along and you extend your arm and you say, I'll help you take my arm. They can't, they can't reach out for help even. They are tapped out. Everything in them is holding on to that cliff and you have to reach down and pick them up because too often people reach out their arm and when you, when the person doesn't take it, then they walk away and say, they didn't really want any help. It's not true. What your friend did, like telling you we're going out, this is, come on, this is what we're doing. Or, hey, I got this baby. You get up and you go take a shower. You remember what taking a shower was like when you when you had a newborn? That moment you had to have a shower? You you have to just jump in. You know, I, I will can I just give this one little example? Like I yeah, it almost we- brings tears to my eyes. I have a friend who recently had a baby, and when I had my doula, you know what she would do? She would get a big pot, boil water with Epsom salt uh-huh. and lavender. She would dip the towel in it and put it around my neck. And my friend, I went to go see her, the baby was nine days old, and I could just tell she was holding it back, but she was trying to be, I don't know, and I I know her well, but it's not like I've known her for 40 years, I've known her for like three. There was just this look, and she wouldn't let me help. I tried, and I was just like, I told her husband, go boil some water, where are your pots? And I was like, where's your Epsom salt? Do you have any? Do you have any lavender? Anything, just anything. Trust me, we're going to do this. And I just made this thing for her. And I was just like, okay, you're going to move. And I'm going to put this on your shoulders. And you're just going to sit here and relax. And do you need tea? Like, it, it wasn't even what do you need? It was, do you need tea? Do you need water? Do you need food? Are you hungry? Like, I was just being so direct. And she started crying when I, and, she, and then she finally let it out that she was struggling. Yeah. And um, I, I'm, I, can I just say, I was so uncomfortable because I haven't known her for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, but I was just like, I don't even care. 
because I knew it helped me. And I was like, I'm just going to reach for that simple thing. She can't get pissed. It's going to feel good no matter what, Mm -hmm. even if she doesn't need it. That's right. So can I just say to everyone, just do the towel as as an opening. It's symbolic, right? It's you are coming in and saying, I am just doing something for you to make you feel better. I'm going to do it for you. Just sit there. A couple things then. Postpartum depression versus psychosis. What do we need to know? Okay. People don't talk about postpartum psychosis much. The re- and they often say it in the same breath as postpartum depression. And then say, oh, and then there's this more extreme thing, postpartum psychosis. It is a different th- thing. And it is a really scary topic. And I think that's why people shy away from it. Mm-hmm. And we can't. We can't shy away from it because its outcomes when not treated are very tragic for whole families, for whole communities. Um, it has to be talked about. Postpartum psychosis is, is relatively rare. It's, they say it's like one to two per thousand live births, but you know, so that's happening. You know, it's, it's happening. There are women out there every day who are in episodes of postpartum psychosis. It's rare that I don't have at least one woman who's in one of my Phoenix or, or Tucson facilities who's experiencing postpartum psychosis um, at all times. It's a whole person change that occurs. So instead of just the depression, the mood swings, there are hallucinations, meaning it's usually hearing hearing voices. And it sounds just like any voice talking to you. It uses the exact same pathways in your brain, but there's no one there. Usually scary things those voices are saying. Um, delusions, which mean, which are false beliefs. And they, they're very much experienced as reality. So you can't like reason or talk somebody out of it. A lot, a lot of emotional distress that comes along with it. It's a, a like a confusion, a disconnect from reality. Um, and most often from, from my experience clinically, the, the delusions are persecutory in nature, um, often with like a religious kind of component to them. And they're, they often involve the baby. So like something evil is happening to the baby or is going to happen to the baby. And there is this disorganization of the behavior. So there's bizarre behaviors. She is not acting like herself. Um, and there is a significant risk of infanticide, meaning a, a mother killing her baby. Not because she doesn't want that baby. Not because she thinks that baby has done something. But because she, the delusion often drives her to conclude that the only way to save the baby or babies is to kill them. Which is not logical. I've heard that. Mm-hmm. Right. It's I not, have heard that. It's not logical. It doesn't make sense. That, but that's psychosis. That's what psychosis does to you. 
is it's a sequencing thing. So it may be baby blues. If you don't treat it, it can go to postpartum depression, then can grow to postpartum psychosis. Are these different? Like, and I'm not saying every postpartum depression that's not treated goes to postpartum psychosis. I'm not saying that, but is it a graduation or they're okay. They're completely different. You know, at least half of people with postpartum psychosis have just no psychiatric history at all. Um, Really? Yeah, absolutely. So this comes out of out of nowhere. I find that a lot of times the women have some history of trauma that kind of makes maybe makes the brain more vulnerable um, to developing postpartum psychosis. A lot of women will uh, go on to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder afterwards, and this is the first manifestation. So there's something about the the lack of sleep and the hormonal changes that are occurring at birth that kind of unmask maybe an underlying bipolar disorder. And they won't likely have episodes uh, unless they have another baby of postpartum psychosis, Um, but they will even between births then have episodes of mania and need to be on like a mood stabilizer on some sort of continuous basis. And, And maybe if she had never given birth or never been pregnant, she might not have ever gone on to really develop bipolar disorder. If there was something, some risk, some vulnerability in her, in her brain, in her genetics um, that was uh, lying underneath, but there was something about the, the, the pregnancy and the birth that unmasked it. I guess for any of these, you know, um, I don't know how we discuss the treatment plan because maybe we just break down like the different Mm -hmm. options because we talked a lot about prevention. I think with postpartum psychosis, it seems like it's not like, (laughs) it's almost like just an awareness of people to watch out for it rather than, okay. I will say that there's some patterns that you can see to, um, like typically when you hear about the, the, the bad cases and the bad cases that we hear about are when women attempt to kill their children or they kill their children, right? So I think the first one maybe in recent collective memory that was the big case was Andrea Yates. She killed, was it five children, I think, she had, that she and she killed them all. And she had had postpartum psychosis after previous births. Um, it was not treated. It was not recognized as a significant risk. So you, you see in the tragic cases often, not always, but often there's multiple babies at home, multiple kids in diapers at the same time, which is a very stressful situation regardless. But you see, you, you see some of that pattern where there's mom has given birth a lot in the last like five years. Right. Um, and there's, so there's repeated, 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 and there's often not a lot of support for her at home. You know, it's often thought she's the mom. This is her job. She's staying at home to take care of all these kids and she should be able to handle that. I can take like maybe a full day with my two and five year old, but it's a lot. It's a lot. If if I had been left alone at home every day with a newborn when my daughter was three, and that's just two kids, I don't know what I don't know what would have happened. I mean, so there's right. there's there's a a stressor component to it that's not like really clearly fleshed out, and sometimes it's just going to happen. 
and some and sometimes it's, it'll happen after the first birth. Sometimes it'll happen when there's support present. Sometimes it's, it's just going to happen. And so, yes, being aware of what those symptoms are and the whole family, because again, when you're dealing with psychosis, a key symptom of psychosis is anosognosia. It's an inability to see that you're sick. It's part of the illness. So in those, in those um, prenatal visits, it's important to talk about this too. I, and I remember it even in my centering um, classes where I was in my, my group appointments, postpartum psychosis was very glossed over. And I was like, oh, hang on a second. Let's like, let's back that up. I was like, postpartum psychosis is a psychiatric emergency. And I can remember the nurse practitioner who was leading the group was like, oh, well, damn. And I was like, okay, I got this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take over your appointment for you real quick because people need to hear what I'm about to say. It is an emergency when you're recognizing this because the risk that that mother could harm the baby, herself, other children is not insignificant. So if you start to notice that she is seeming confused and disconnected from reality and seems to be responding to internal stimuli, responding to uh, voices that you can't hear, that is an emergency. I'd like to paint the picture, though, for what happens when the emergency help is sought after. And here's why I asked this. Mm -hmm. When I did the OCD interview, um, she was saying that a lot of OCD people are misdiagnosed and potentially like put in prison and things like that. Uh Um, And I think right now, I'm going to be put in a mental ward. I'm going to be taken away from my children. I'm never going to see them again. Like that's, that would be where I could see people, people going. Um, So can, and and here's the thing we can't in this discussion say that will never happen. No. And I, but I think it's important. Right. So I want to educate though on what we should expect and should it happen and someone try to do the wrong thing, how, what in the heck you advocate for? Cause that's what I, I find in healthcare is like, you need to know what's happening and be educated enough so that you can fight the system and stand up for people who don't understand it. So let's go. <laughs> so here's what's, here's what's going to happen or what should happen. Mom and baby should be physically separated right then and there. But I promise you that what's harder is coming out of an episode of postpartum psychosis and then coming to the realization that you've killed your baby. Because that that hurt forever. So you have to you have to separate them physically. Safe place for the baby. Mom has to go in for treatment. This is not outpatient treatment. Okay. This is you're getting admitted. And that's the safest thing to do. In this situation. And I appreciate you being honest and straight because we have to be. <laughs> and, and I will tell you that sometimes families will fight. They'll, they'll bring her in. And then when I say I'm admitting her often involuntarily, the families will sometimes fight tooth and nail to, to get her out. And it will be a battle. And I think one of the things that happens with Families and mental illness is that whereas it feels very much like you're advocating for the person, 
you are inadvertently colluding with the mental illness. The mental illness wants to take you. It's going to walk with your legs and talk with your mouth, but its goal is to harm you, harm others, and thereby harm you, right? So it's, it's not her that you're dealing with right now. And when you're advocating for taking someone out of treatment that they need for whatever reason, because she's begging you and you feel really bad, it's, it's not fun. It's not like this warm, fuzzy thing that happens when you come into an inpatient psych unit suffering from postpartum psychosis. You don't want to be there. You don't think you need to be there. It's scary. Um, and it's, it's necessary. Not forever. We're not doing that anymore. I think we've learned some of those lessons over the years that you shouldn't uh, house people in state psychiatric hospitals for the rest of their lives for the most part. Right. What could the journey look like? Like how long might it be? Uh, I would, I would anticipate uh, it being probably a couple weeks. Oh, so it's not like years or months no, it's necessarily. Not years. It could, it could be months, it could be a couple months, okay. but it's until the symptoms attenuate to a point that you can, be discharged with then an outpatient level of care in a couple weeks. Oh, so it's more just state. So it's, it seems like it's stabilizing the, um, the acute symptoms. Yeah. So it's getting, it's getting you out of the episode. So part of that, and this is something that I have to explain to people too, the, the, we start medications and the, the name of the game when you're dealing with postpartum psychosis and or a manic episode of bipolar disorder is get them to sleep right? They're not sleeping. So you have to sedate them. And I say, they come and they're like, oh my God, my loved one, they look so sedated. I don't want them to leave here looking like a zombie. I'm like, I get what you're saying. I have to kind of snow them a little bit right now in this setting where I can monitor them and make sure that they're safe so I can pull them out of this episode. And then we're going to gradually back off, gradually back off. So yes, they're going to look like a zombie a little bit at first. If you don't want them there for the next six months trying to get this under control, that's what's kind of necessary. So you get them medicated, you get it treated, and then you can continue hopefully outpatient level of, of, of care. So it's not going to be forever. Are they allowed to have more kids? Is it is a recommendation not to have more children or is it be proactive and be prepared? Be proactive and be prepared. You can absolutely okay. have more children. That might mean start if you're not already continuing medication during pregnancy with the, the help of a reproductive psychiatrist swaying in. That might mean starting medications before you give birth in anticipation of this being a potential or having very frequent postpartum visits with your reproductive psychiatrist. Um, everybody has to be aware, cognizant of the warning signs. As soon as she starts to say this one thing, we can tell it's starting to happen. And then maybe you need to up your Seroquel a little bit, right? And that's a call to the, to the psychiatrist and, hey, I think it's starting to happen. Let's get on top of this, right? That is very possible, but you can't ignore it. 
So I learned something, um, well, I've learned a lot today, but reproductive psychiatrists. So this is one thing that's also fascinating to me is the number of subspecialties there are that we aren't even aware of. How does one find a reproductive psychiatrist? They're out there. Um, I would say most of them are probably in, in major cities. I know. Um, like a lot of the, I, I trained in New York City. Um, so a lot of the reproductive psychiatrists I knew were in New York City. Um, and there aren't a ton of psychiatrists and certainly not a ton of reproductive psychiatrists. But what reproductive psychiatrists do to kind of expand their influence is they provide a lot of free consultation to people who aren't reproductive psychiatrists. So, um, ah. yes. so uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, MGH, uh, has a, uh, it's the perinatal psychiatric consult line um, that's run by Postpartum Support International. Uh, they, it's a free service. It's staffed by volunteer reproductive psychiatrists. They provide guidance to, to medical professionals who have questions about the, any psychiatric care of pregnant postpartum patients or, um, some of the unique hormonal conditions that we run into. They are expert in all of that. And it is really easily accessible to any healthcare professional. So getting expert advice is like a phone call away or it's like, wow, like go to their website and, and okay. fill out like a, a really quick form and then you get a call, right? It's, it, okay. it's easy to access. And then I think it is the responsibility of all psychiatrists who are practicing in the community to apprise themselves of this knowledge, right? That you have to be aware. You might not be a specialist. You might have to reach out to to one of those reproductive psychiatrists on the on the um, perinatal psychiatric consult line from time to time, but it is every psychiatrist's responsibility to understand and be able to educate their their patients and be able to diagnose accurately what these disorders are. And I mentioned MGH earlier; they have this um, uh, a whole series of uh, continuing medical education modules. Um, on perinatal psychiatry, they have um, a, a website, the, their Psychiatry Academy website run by MGH. You need to educate yourself. It is all of our responsibility. I'm not trained in reproductive psychiatry, but I made it my business to know the information and then to know the extent of where my knowledge ends and when I need to reach out to um, one of the reproductive psychiatrists. Any clinician, and this is for clinicians, so any clinician in the United States mm -hmm. can contact that hotline. It doesn't have to be Massachusetts. Mm -mm, nope. And, and often states uh, have their own individual consult lines as well. Okay. Um, so there's there's multiple different resources, but the, the one run from MGH is anyone can use it. Got it. I asked because I'm on Fem Power Health. I just redid the website, and now I have... Um, by stage of life and by topic, a resource page. And it's the episodes, blog posts, and like other resources to click on. So I will be sure to, yes, to add Thank this. you so much. Thank you. So then for, for your company, you had alluded to, you know, Phoenix and um, was it Tucson? Yeah, Phoenix and Tucson. That's where, that's where our roots are. It's where we started. Um, we are growing into, we also run a, a mobile crisis uh, team in Montana and Bozeman. 
um, and our expanding services in Montana. We're looking um, at expanding in um, into other states as well, Washington State, uh, Virginia, and other states uh, as well. But there's we're doing also a lot of like consultant work. Like we've done consultant work in in Kansas. So has have the laws changed yet? Where it doesn't matter where you practice patients can contact you from anywhere or has that not yet changed? I haven't looked recently. So you, you, to provide services in the state where the patient is located, like where they live on an ongoing basis, you have to be licensed in okay. that state. Um, a growing number of um, mental health clinicians, psychiatrists included, are getting with the explosion of telehealth are being licensed in, in multiple states to be able to provide those services across state lines. Um, you always have 988, right, that that has launched that people are able to call and access um, crisis mental health services instead of just having to call 911. 988 will connect you to crisis lines um, immediately. And the, the infrastructure of local mental health systems is highly, highly variable, but I think there's a lot of attention now being paid uh, post-pandemic to crisis mental health services. And that's, I think that's why we're expanding so much is because a lot of local governments are now like, oh my God, we don't have this system developed that we really, really need. Um, So we're, that's why we're going into all of these new, and it's exhausting, like uh, learning all of the local laws that govern and and who the players are in the system and because again our job is to know the hell out of that system right yeah you are the point for everyone where every line connects and you need to know how to help people navigate it and know where the gaps are that you need to fill and that is what we do best um but there's going to be some some semblance of a, of a crisis system wherever you are. It's just often not as well developed as it is yep. here. So what would be like for the patients, family members, and the doctor? I don't know if it's one message or if there's three or two. So I'm going to let you conclude with what the takeaway should be. I think it's one message. And I, I think that message is know what to look out for. Know what the potential outcomes are, pay attention to what's going on with her and then find ways to support her. The whole system, every single person, we all have to maintain that sense of responsibility for each other, but especially women who have just given birth. It was really great. This was fabulous. I had so much fun. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise 
of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stage ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.